Hey, I'm Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. COVID modeling numbers say we should watch out for potentially a thousand new cases per day in this province. Plus, when it comes to long-term care, Ontario could have and should learn a few things from British Columbia. And last night's big debate in the U.S. has got me feeling down and talking like a clown. That's coming up. Let's get to it. Uh, it is a sad day for the Republic to the South. I don't know if you stayed up last night watching that debate. But here's the clip that I, I just, just grabbed me and uh, I, I love so much. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. <laughs> I, th- that is, Joe Biden, thank you very much. That is one of my very favorite insults. Uh, if, uh, if I'm going to throw down an insult, I don't go blue. I don't work blue. I just do that. I just say, what a clown. Hit it again, Joe. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. That thing was a shouting match masquerading as a debate last night. And we're going to talk more about that. We're going to dig into it. And what does it all mean? Does it mean anything? Does any of it mean anything? We'll talk about that later on in the program. But something that does mean a whole lot the numbers and also the projections that we got this morning, and I could dig right into that. Here, I'll give you a breakdown on some of the numbers. You heard about it in the news, but I always like to dig in a little deeper into the numbers. Your daily number is 625. I often say don't get freaked out by the number. Don't get freaked out by that number. That's the number that is always the headline, and people get really worked up about the daily case number. But it's not the most important thing that you need to keep in mind. We'll talk about that in a second. Here are a couple other really key numbers. That is the number of tests. Pardon me, that's at 35,800. And again, look at the difference between tests and tests pending, because tests pending is 67,000. So still, we're one, running way behind in terms of getting those tests processed. Here's another very worrying number. Hospitalizations up 13. This is in the past 24 hours. Ontario-wide. Now, it's only 150, so the number is not huge, but it is growing steadily, daily. Yesterday, it was also above 10. It was in the double digits. I think it was 17, 18 yesterday, 13 again today. Quick breakdown in terms of public health units, 288 cases in Toronto, 97 in Peel, 64 in Ottawa. Those three areas continue to lead the province. 41 in York Region, which is also concerning. So if there are restrictions to come, York Region may find itself in those restrictions in that area if we do a kind of a regional approach, which many people have urged the Premier to do, not to go, you know, from, you know, from Windsor to Wawa with one particular thing. So uh, we got that new modeling information. And, of course, with new modeling information, it's a lot of details. It's a lot of facts and figures. So what you need when you have something like this is you need a communicator. You need somebody who is able to come out and say things in a way that people will understand and will appreciate. For example, what is the one thing right now we can all just latch right onto? We just know right away. And that's Thanksgiving, because that's coming up. It's right around the corner. And we know now, 
We know what gatherings and groups of people getting together can do. We know that this whole bubble thing has been a disaster because everybody's like, well, I got my 10-person bubble over here, and then why don't you come over with your bubble, and then somebody else comes over with their bubble. And next thing you know, it's more of a chain-link fence than a bubble. I don't know who I stole that line from, but I I thieved it from somebody. I like it because this whole bubble thing has not worked. But when it comes to Thanksgiving, all right. Dr. David Williams, he is the lead medical official in this province. When it is put to him, should we be getting together for Thanksgiving? What should we do? This is the answer. If you're going to have a Thanksgiving where you would like to maybe have a very large extended group into your location, we may be asking that you would limit that and that you would keep it, to, especially with those that are in part of your household and family and others. So we're waiting for some further recommendations from the uh, public health measures table. Uh, we always have our standard message around Thanksgiving uh, because we have to emphasize to cook the turkey well. What are you even talking about? This is Dr. David Williams yesterday during a briefing where he, I think he says don't get together, but he'll get back to us? He'll get back to us? Meanwhile, get a meat thermometer? I don't, I don't think salmonella is the big concern right here. Thank you, Dr. Williams. And my point being that who is the great communicator in this province? Who is actually in charge? Dr. Williams is supposed to be the person. That is the medical official in charge right there. Cook your turkey. Here are the details from the modeling information that was released with Dr. Williams and also members of the command table today. And what it shows is that cases in this province are now doubling every 10 to 12 days. We have seen that. We know that to be true. And of course, there is a second wave. It is here. It is not perhaps in all parts of the province, but it certainly is in the three and four areas, three or four areas I mentioned just a moment ago, Toronto, York, Ottawa, Peel. Now, according to this new modeling information, that the cases have surged, as you've heard, in the age group of 20 to 39. What do we got here? Numbers wide, like 67% again today in that age group. And that that now has spilled across from that age group into other age groups. Here is Dr. Adelstein Brown, who is the dean of the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, at this modeling press conference this morning with some very stark words and a stark warning. If things grow as we're anticipating, we will see a dramatic uh, increase in the number of cases with cases now doubling every 10 to 12 days, and likely over uh, 1,000 cases uh, within the first half of October a day, which is a remarkably high surge, uh, unless uh, public health measures and adherence to public health measures start to tamp down that transmission. 1,000 cases a day by early October. That is what we are heading towards if we do not see some real impact from the public health measures that have been put in place and that people are actually adhering to those measures. 
It was Dr. Brown this morning at that press conference. Now, the key, of course, when you start looking at the numbers here, is you have a couple of metrics that you have to keep your eye on. Obviously, it's case numbers, but it is also what's happening in hospitals. I gave you that hospital number, again, up today. Hospitals up by 13 hospitalizations. Now, from the modeling information we got today, what we know is that if we could keep COVID patients in ICU under 150, then we can maintain non-COVID capacity, and that means scheduled surgeries can continue. Obviously, we're working our way through a backlog that was accumulated during the first shutdown, and medical officials, they don't want to do that again. If we keep the number under 150, we can keep scheduled surgeries going. Above 150, harder. Above 350, according to the health table, it becomes impossible to maintain scheduled surgeries. Essentially, we have to shut the system down and we have to just only deal with COVID-related emergencies. And then you get into a situation where you're triaging people, and we've seen this in other parts of the world where people are just, where health officials are just deciding as people come through the door whether you live or die, whether you get a chance to get on a ventilator or not. So above 350, that is what we got to keep that below. Give you a, a sense of where we are today. We're at 35. Again, under 150, scheduled surgeries continue. So right now we're at 35. You're going to say, well, that sounds good. That sounds good. Except for that number is up plus five in the past 24 hours. And I keep saying this about lag time. I keep talking about how the numbers that you see today in cases then impact hospitalizations and then impacts ICUs, and it's all on a delay. Now, here is Dr. Brown expressing this far better than I ever have. Remember, there's infection and then a delay before the development of symptoms, the development of symptoms and the testing and likely identification of a case, and then a delay again until the development of symptoms that are severe enough requiring hospitalization uh, and eventually treatment in an intensive care unit. There's Dr. Brown talking about the delay that happens with the numbers. I'm running out of time, but I got to get to this because... Obviously, what you hear from the modeling today is alarming. So the question repeatedly, repeatedly back to Dr. Williams is, is it time for more measures? And this is the question here from Mike Crawley of the CBC. The answer from Dr. Turkey, David Williams. Does that imply that um, there need to be additional um, restrictions imposed to slow the rate of growth of cases. Precisely. And uh, we're implementing, as we said, some on the 19th and 25th. We want to see in the next number of days is and will that have impact? I don't know what that meant. Other than we've already done some stuff. So we're going to wait because as we talked about lag time. So we're waiting. And other health officials say that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. In fact, the, the head of critical care at Michael Guerin Hospital, Dr. Michael Warner, who says, why aren't we acting right now? It doesn't make any sense. And you know that modeling in April said that over the course of the pandemic, deaths in Ontario would be from a low of 3,000 to a high of 15,000. 
And here is Dr. Brown again on those death rates. Probably, you know, if we were to model those death rates and present those here today, you would see very similar uh, potential high death rates uh, in the province. High death rates. In other words, if things don't change, we are on track for that high number of 15,000. We are already about 2,500, I believe, is our latest number. If you were with us for our last segment, you heard me talking about Thanksgiving and playing a clip there from Dr. Williams about making sure that you cook your turkey. Uh, and uh, Mike writes in to me uh, at my email, which is alan, A-L-A-N, dot carter at globalnews.ca. He says, you overcomplicate things, Alan. Dr. Williams was clear. He says... Uh, as he says, you can get together as long as you don't get your immediate family inside, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and he said that his Thanksgiving message is just about cooking your turkey. It's something he does every year. So just, uh, Mike saying that I got that one wrong. I respectfully disagree, Mike. I want to talk real quick about long-term care, a new report coming out about long-term care in this province and specifically what it ha- was that happened here in the spring uh, vis-a-vis what happened in British Columbia. So what happened in BC with long-term care and with COVID and seniors and what happened in Ontario and the key findings of this report in the Canadian Medical Association Journal is, during the first wave of the pandemic, British Columbia was faster than Ontario in responding to COVID-19 with actions to address public health support, staffing and infection prevention and control. It also finds that leaders in British Columbia were more decisive, coordinated and consistent in their overall communication and response in comparison to what happened here in Ontario. It is a damning report of this province's response to COVID-19 in the first wave. Now, yesterday the province announced that as of October the 5th, only staff and people deemed to be essential caregivers or essential visitors will be permitted in LTCs and that will apply in the Greater Toronto Area And in Ottawa, Ford also announced yesterday $540 million in additional funding to help long-term care homes. The question is, where was this money before? We are in the second wave. And we have this report that says officials here did not act fast enough first time around. What's happening now? This coming up in the House today. Here is the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath. The Premier said yesterday that the numbers speak for themselves. He's absolutely right. 46 homes are currently in outbreak. Two more homes in Ottawa had to be taken over by hospitals because the for-profit operators couldn't handle what was happening in the homes. 1,867 seniors have died. My note said 1,866, although another person died just since This note was given to me this morning. When the Premier says the numbers speak for themselves, what numbers is he actually talking about? Because these numbers are horrifying and shameful and could have been prevented. That is Andrea Horvath in the House today in the legislature at Queen's Park. What do people living in long-term care homes think? We sent our Catherine Ward, our reporter, out to talk to some of them today. 
And she spoke to one gentleman uh, at a long-term care home at Bendale Acres Long-Term Care Home. Here's what he had to say. I'm 70 years old, and I'm in the age bracket where this COVID disease is killing. Will kill. And uh, the only thing I don't like about it is with these masks, my glasses fuck up. <laughs> uh, that is a gentleman who is a resident of a long-term care home called Bendale Acres here in Toronto. And Catherine Ward, our Global News reporter, joins me on the line. Uh, Kat, you talked to a, a bunch of different residents. What was the what was the takeaway from what you heard? Thanks for having me on, Alan. Yeah, I mean, everybody that I spoke with who was able to tell me about what's happening inside this particular long-term care home, I mean, everyone's worried. They, they're just worried about their health. They're worried about their safety. And especially that gentleman who you just uh, played that clip from, I mean, John is so sweet, but he was out for a walk and he had to get that walk approved, Alan, you know, two weeks ago to go to a doctor's appointment so that he could just leave the facility. So, so many strict measures in place and just a lot of concern because they are in that age group where this disease can just be a death sentence. What's the reaction been to what the Premier announced yesterday, which is a tightening of uh, visitor restrictions uh, for these areas in Greater Toronto Area and also in Ottawa? I would say it's a bit mixed. To be honest, I spoke with a few people heading into the home this morning to be with their loved ones. And one gentleman said, you know, his wife has been there for five years and he is okay with whatever the restrictions need to be so that he can continue to see his wife. And his concern is just that he doesn't want to be put back in a situation where he doesn't have that access and that he can't help support her care in the home because he was telling me, you know, he helps feed her, he helps change her, he, he is one of her caregivers, and he just doesn't want to go back to that place. Yeah, so he would be able to continue to go under this designation of essential visitor or essential caregiver. Yeah, that's what we understand. You know, uh, Ford said that two family members could become uh, these essential caregivers. And really what the difference is, is that there will be an intentional uh, directive and a guideline to train these essential people uh, to how to don and to doff, uh, you know, put on, take off the protective equipment and just sort of, you know, ironing out some of those details and giving them that extra little bit of training and the goal there to strengthen all the measures in place to protect these elderly people against COVID-19. Just to go back to that clip we played, that that resilience and humor was, you know, on a day when we're getting some tough news from the province about modeling numbers going forward, you know, (laughs) to hear the real world complain about this mask makes my glasses fog up, that really brings it home. Oh, I know. And he was just so sweet to talk with. He was kind of shocked that I even, you know, asked if he might speak with us, but he was happy to talk. He said, you know, I haven't had many visitors. I haven't really been out in the world for such a long time. And, you know, that resilience, you could really hear it in his voice. And he just, he says, you know, he wants to get through. He wants to be able to come out of this pandemic on the other side and, you know, have it be a tale that he tells his friends and his family members. (laughs) Catherine Ward is a reporter with Global News and look forward to your story tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6, Kat. Thank you, Alan. Did you turn on the television last night? Did you decide to tune in and check out what is supposed to be the first of three presidential debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? It is difficult to imagine that there will be two more debates, but I suppose that is possible after what happened last night. Much of it was just shouting 
back and forth. And then this line from Joe Biden. You get the final word. Mr. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. Excuse me. This, hey, hey this let me person. just say to you. No, no, no. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. Just a number, one of a number of insults traded back and forth, both from Biden to Trump. But when it comes to interrupting, that was clearly all on the president, who seemed to be absolutely incapable allow, of allowing Biden his scheduled two minutes to speak. And then perhaps this is actually the key moment of the debate, the takeaway, the most newsworthy event. Here it is. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing problem. That is the moment last night when the president was asked to condemn white supremacy. And as you heard, he referred to Proud Boys and said, stand back and stand by. If you're not familiar with that group, Proud Boys, which admits men only, was classified in 2018 by the FBI as an extremist group. Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center lists it as a hate group. The Anti-Defamation League describes the group as misogynistic, Islamophobic, transphobic, and anti-immigration. And the leader of the free world and the commander-in-chief of the American Armed Forces just said to that group, stand back and stand by. What to make of it all and whether or not it actually makes any difference in the end. Renan Levine is with the University of Toronto. He's a professor, a political expert, joins me on the line. Welcome. Hi there. Uh, let's begin with that big question. Does it make any difference to the entrenched divide south of the border in terms of voters? Sorry, can you repeat that? Did last night's debate make any difference to the voter intention? No. First, very few undecided voters would have watched. And I think if there were very many wavering voters, um, I think what you saw was if you had any preconceived notions about uh, either a strong leader or a bully or someone who is a little slow on his feet or thoughtful, I think you would have found evidence that would support or preconceived notions. So I don't think the debate moved much because I think both sides were able to say, look, we did what we accomplished. That said, I think I'm somewhat surprised that a lot of talk today uh, has been about the Proud Boys comment and the, his, President Trump's inability to condemn them um, and a few other comments, which means that, hey, Donald Trump is behind in the polls. And even if he didn't lose very many supporters last night, I think he clearly didn't gain any, and that's a problem for him at this point in the game. Why? Let me circle back. Why, why are you surprised that there is so much attention being paid to the Proud Boys moment? Well, I, you know, 
after 90 minutes of back and forth yelling and screaming, um, that that one comment was what people, you know, sort of pulling out of this debate. Um, when, to be honest, I think a lot of people are saying, look, we already knew this. Um, and even Trump's defenders pointing to, well, a second before, he then says, sure, he'd condemn. And he did the same thing after Schwitzville, right? You know, I condemn all, you know, hate groups, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes in with the there's good people on both sides comment. Um, and so similar thing here. Um, so in many ways, right, this I, I think for a lot of people like me who've been paying very close attention, it's like this is not really that new. We know that he's very hesitant to condemn any supporters no matter how racist or bigoted they are. And yet, here we are, and this is what we're talking about, and this is not a narrative that I think helps Donald Trump as he tries to narrow this to his, the deficit he's facing. His strategy, if there was one in the debate, was in many ways almost a personification of uh, Trump's strategy overall in 2016, his entire uh, presidency, which is disinformation, noise, and confusion. And I think he strategically wanted to knock Biden off of his flow. Uh, I think that the interruptions were in many ways designed to fluster Biden, which they often did. Um, so, yes, and I think one of the big questions um, that we'll be looking at over these next four odd days is, is 2020 different than 2016? Because when you are the challenger saying everything needs to change and I'm going to come in and things need to change so it's okay to have a bull in the China shop, now it's like, well, the bull has been in charge of the China shop for almost four years. And is this an unmitigated disaster? Yes or no? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of us are in some ways burned by 2016, where debates like this, the initial outcome was seen by a lot of people as, oh, you know, Clinton did well. And only later did people think, well, actually, among the voters that seemed to matter, Trump probably came off as very strong and he made his key points about that things had to change. And now, you know, I don't know. I mean, how many attacks, especially lying, discredited attacks on Joe Biden's son is going to have much of an impact? You know, he's the person in charge should be running on his record or his record of I will bring it back to where it was, say, 11 months ago. There, there was some, to be fair, there was some of that, of running on the record. And I, I take your point that we should not be surprised by really anything that we saw or heard from the president last night. It really wasn't out of character, any of it, what he said. And I think for many going forward, the, the big question is going to be what happens after November the 3rd. And I thought this exchange with Joe Biden talking about you know, would each candidate actually honor the results of the election? Here is the back and forth between Chris Wallace of Fox News and Joe Biden. The fact is, I will accept it, and he will too. You know why? Because once the winner is declared after all the, all the ballots are counted, all the votes are counted, that'll be the end of it. 
That'll be the end of it. And if it's me, in fact, fine. If it's, if it's not me, I'll support the outcome. There's Joe Biden last night saying he would support the outcome of the election. Obviously a different message from Donald Trump. What did you make of Biden's strategy here, Renan? You know, if I was advising him, I think I would have said the first part a bit differently. But the second part was what you'd expect. It shouldn't be newsworthy. You know, presidential candidate says that even if he loses, he'll accept the outcome. Well, thank you. That's been the case since 1800 um, and when John Adams lost. But, you know, so the fact that it's newsworthy that Trump is still not coming out I was thinking about your point because I think it's a really good. So, okay, maybe we shouldn't say surprise, but it is still shocking. No matter how not many times we hear President Trump refuse to just verbally articulate support for democratic norms, it's still shocking when he doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we all are beginning to really realize, you know, if we hadn't before, that November 3rd is just a step in this process. We have November 3rd, and then there's a couple other dates uh, after the election, and then towards January 20th, which is uh, Inauguration Day. I, I guess here, here's a question about Joe Biden and his team. Considering what happened last night, and we have two more of these to go. If you're Biden... Do you say, yeah, sign me up for another one of those? Or do you risk getting pummeled on he refuses to debate and just say there's no point of doing this again? I don't think he can flat out refuse to debate. I think we might see some posturing saying we need to change the rules. Um, I think we all need to keep in mind the West debate is town hall format. So it's going to be very hard to pursue this kind of interruption um, strategy. Um, and Donald Trump has actually done, I mean, both candidates have done fairly well in town hall, like says in the past. Um, so there's that one. So I guess the real concern is in two weeks. Next week, of course, is the vice presidential debate. Um, and yeah, I think Biden, um, I, I think it'd be very hard for Biden to say, look, I'm just going to stop doing this. Um, we might see some noises that some about the rules have to change. Um, but I, I think he doesn't have a choice at this point. Uh, I think he has to go in because otherwise he'd be fitting this narrative of he's hiding in his basement and he won't take tough questions. And as long as Biden sort of crosses this low bar that Donald Trump has set, that he's feeble-minded, he needs the questions fed to him, uh, he can't think clearly, uh, it's such a low bar it should be still so fairly easy for Biden to cross, even when there's a cringeworthy moment. Um, for me, it was early on, the very first question. And it seemed like Biden was actually getting a little confused. Did he want to talk about health care or do he want to talk about abortion with Roe versus Wade? And it was just a not very smooth, or super articulated moment. And but he still, you know, is not coming off as someone who is totally out of it. He's still able to rip off some policy details. Um, and so I think he does have to go on and continue this. And perhaps with some consolation that if you're an undecided voter, nothing about last night would, you would have enjoyed. Uh, undecided voters in 2020 with these two stark 
contrasts running against each other, they really are not very interested or engaged in politics by and large. And it's nights like that that would have only turned them off even more to politics, which I'm afraid in many ways is part of Donald Trump's strategy, because that's what worked in 2016. But I am not 100 percent sure that's really going to work to his advantage of essentially driving down turnout and turning people off. Um, I'm not sure that when you're the incumbent and you're behind in the polls by the extent he is, that's going to work. But of course, as you mentioned, there's a lot of other deadlines and there's states like Pennsylvania that is critical and they won't start counting the ballots till Election Day or afterwards. And so there's all sorts of shenanigans um, that I'm afraid may take place. And I mean, Trump even said earlier this week that he wants the Supreme Court judges to be there to make sure that the Republican desires when it comes to counting ballots and deliberating on this election uh, is, the, is in place. Uh, and that's, that's absolutely frightening. As an American, that is so scary. All of it is very concerning and, and, and frightening because, as I said, it doesn't end November 3rd, even when the votes, not, not all the mail-in ones, but the majority of the votes, are counted. Brennan Levine is a professor with the University of Toronto. He's a political expert. It's been great talking about the debate with you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. If I can make the quickest point, as you talk about things later, I think one of the things that your audience, I would encourage them to think about is, let's say Trump does lose, but if he's in so much doubt about the legitimacy of this election, when you say, well, you know, November 3rd happens and January 21st happens, like we may be dealing with a situation where 2021, in the midst of a, you know, hopefully a vaccine being distributed, we're dealing with people who are saying we don't think that the authority is legitimate. And that is a really scary thought. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Professor. Appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. That's it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Stay tuned. Of course, we've got Doug Ford coming up, and he'll be talking about those modeling numbers that we heard about today. The headline there is that without any changes, without drastic changes in terms of our behavior, we could see more than 1,000 cases daily by mid-October. That daily number today, 625. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.